I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, rare friends. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so grateful you're here. I love doing this podcast, and I have so much fun learning from all of you and sharing your stories. If I could ask you one favor, it would be to share this episode or one of your favorite episodes with just one person today. Would you do that for me? Just a little boop, boop, copy, share, good karma. Thank you. I'm very excited to introduce you to my guest today. What a guy. He made it his personal mission to help patients who suffer from an orphan disorder that has affected his entire family, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. His advocacy efforts has led him to now being CEO and president of OptimiCare, which is a nationally recognized pharmacy, distribution, and patient management organization. He's also the host of the Rare Voices podcast. The link for that's going to be in the show notes. Definitely add that podcast to your rare list. It's fantastic. And do follow him on LinkedIn to see his blog updates. He's a really special guy, and I just know you're going to love him. Please enjoy my conversation with Donovan Quill. Hi, Donovan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Effie. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yes. I've been really looking forward to our chat since I had the opportunity to be on your amazing podcast, Rare Voices. <laughs> and I, I love that I get to turn the tables and actually kind of put you in the hot seat behind the mic this time. I'm excited. I, I, don't, get the, I don't get to be in the hot seat very often, so it's, uh, it's, it's pretty <laughs> awesome. Well, I have a feeling there's probably going to be a lot more for you to come because you're all over the place now and <laughs> I'm really happy to be connected to you. So I know you run a mission-driven pharmaceutical company called OptimiCare, and it stemmed from a really deep and personal experience of your own. I know that your family has been plagued with a rare disease and your father got sick and passed away. So can you just start there? Tell us about those early days and a little bit about the disease. Yeah, you're correct. My, my family has a, a disease called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. About 25 million people carry uh, one gene uh, in the U.S., and there's about 150 to 150,000 patients that are probably undiagnosed out in the U.S. Um, it's a genetic disorder that your body's not making a protein that basically protects your lungs from uh, deterioration. So your body's not making uh, the alpha-1 protein. And essentially, every time you have an exacerbation or your body like releases what's called neutrophil to clean itself and clean the lungs out, there's nothing there to stop it from cleaning. So it basically starts wearing and tearing away on lungs. So if your lungs are exacerbated from cigarette smoke, every time it happens, every time you smoke, you, you wear away your lungs a little bit worse than a regular smoker. Every time you have pneumonia, cold, any of those type of things, you, you start feeling those effects. So Someone who has alpha-1 and a trypsin deficiency usually develops emphysema 
regardless of age or smoking history at some point in their life, or, you know, if they show severity, it's usually at an earlier age. There's also a liver component too, where the antitrypsin releases out of the liver. Um, and unfortunately, the, uh, the alpha-1 protein clogs the liver. So with my father, we first saw the lung effects of it. With most of my family, we saw lungs and liver. Uh, with my father, we saw lung effects for a long, long time and eventually got a double lung transplant in 2006. Was doing great for about 50, you know, 10 to 15 years post-transplant. And then eventually, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the liver got him in the end, and he passed away in 2013 from alpha-1-related liver disease and liver failure. Most of my aunts and uncles uh, passed away from lung and liver components of alpha-1 in their 40s. So my dad was 69 when he passed away, and you know, because of the treatment he got, because of the, uh, the care models that, we, that were put together for him that we worked on together to develop, he was able to live about 10 years past his brothers and sisters to receive the lung transplant. And then, uh, you know, a number of years post-transplant because of the care model that he really, that he, you know, managed and lived. And that's, we're, we're forever grateful for that. When we started talking about what we need to do for patients, uh, as you said, a mission-driven pharmacy, we set up uh, Optimi Care and we decided to have a patient-first, mission-driven, you know, national pharmacy that really focuses on orphan, ultra-orphan, rare disease. And we really wanted to make sure that we were always looking at the patient first and how do we put care plans together for success for the patient and to make sure that that patient had the assistance and felt that there was there's people there walking beside them, helping them through education, support, affordability, all the things that go into making sure that, you know, you can... You don't have to sit there and manage everything. You can you can you can live your life while we help manage the uh, the chaos that goes along with having a rare disease. I'm pretty sure everyone <laughs> wants that. <laughs> I mean, we hear about patient centric right. uh, stuff all the time, and I think a lot of the time it can be lip service, right? Yeah, there's, and unfortunately, yeah, I think you, you see that a lot in the pharmaceutical industry. You, ha, you know, I think everybody has to. You come in with that common core of we're doing this for the patient, and and I really do believe at, at the core of everything, there is at one point in time the patient, and at some point, I think some companies lose their way. I think some companies, you know, start thinking about revenue. I think some companies start thinking about how they get bigger and they grow, and they, you know, sometimes unfortunately. That's where the, that, I don't want to say the patient gets left behind, but little nuances around that patient care and that patient-centric mentality kind of go away. One of the things that also come with it is, is who you bring into the company. And, you know, we really, when we, when we bring somebody into the company, we really sit down and talk to them. I, I, I sit down with every single person that, that works here, whether, you know, no matter what level the, the person is in ter terms of chain of command, I believe that every single person plays their part. So really when I sit down with them, you know, one of the questions I ask every single person here is if, if all your bills were paid, you had your car, your house, your kids were in college, like whatever you needed was paid for, but you had to work. What would you do? And I can tell you, every single person here was something related to helping someone or something. So we had a lot of a lot of people that would have you know that would that would choose to go. We have a lot of pharmacists here. They they said you know a lot of them said hey their dream job all along was to be a pharmacist because they want to help patients. We have some nurses and they always said they wanted to be you know patient driven and patient focused and help people that were really sick. Um, we have some people who've answered where it might not be a person, but they said, I'd open up an animal shelter. So they wanted to help something. They wanted to provide a service. Um, but not one person here that said, I want to be a cabana boy at the beach. Not one person here <laughs> said. It was all, every single person had the, the answer of, 
and without even thinking, they just, boom, I want to help somebody. I want to help something. I want to provide care in some way. And I think that's the, you know, the, the, the one thing I can say about here is that it's ingrained in who the people are. So I think as, as companies look for people to bring in, to stay that patient-centric, they have to bring in people that have that first and foremost thought process. Secondly, you have to, my, my belief, belief system is if you take care of the patient, you do everything right by the patient. And when I say that, it means helping the physicians, you know, with, you know, what kind of care plan the patient needs, helping the physicians to, to navigate through the insurance company, helping the caregivers to understand the disorder and be there for them as well. Helping, you know, the payers understand why this medication is necessary, you know, from a, you know, reimbursement standpoint. And then just overall, just be there to listen. And be there as someone who cares. It's not hard to do. It's just as you do those things, don't lose sight of that patient. And then everything else will fall in line. Your patients will be more compliant. There'll be higher drug utilization. The, the care and the, 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 the patient will actually have a you know, long-term success on the therapy. They will you know, have a, an idea of what they need to do to help themselves be better. And you know, eventually you see kind of that overall healthcare spend come down because you see those patients there. You see revenue because the patients are, are, are there. So when, when companies get worried about revenue, we're worried about growth, get worried about all those things, if you take care of the patient, all of those things will come. But you have to stay laser focused on taking care of the patient. I think that was just the most perfect answer. And you can tell that it's just so true and that you believe it to your core because you've experienced it. I mean, you watched you watched this work for your dad for as long as it did, which ultimately, you know, gave you this heart in in what you're doing for your career choice. It's really amazing, Donovan. Well, thank you. Yeah. I kind of want to back up a little bit. I know that you used to be a, like a college lacrosse coach. And one day you were walking away from a game or a practice, I don't know, and you were having a, a deep thoughts moment and you asked yourself if you were where you were supposed to be, if you were doing the right thing. And I was just wondering, like, do you think that was like kind of a midlife crisis type moment <laughs> or do you believe like the universe was trying to send you a message and you started listening? I know you like magic yeah. and I like woo-woo, so I was just wondering... Why do you think that happened in that moment? And is that the first time it happened or the first time you listened? I, it probably was the first time I listened. So, you know, I know I told you the story before, but yeah, you're right. I was, I was, we were, we just finished up our season. We, I think we had our, you know, our sports end of the year sports banquet where we gave out awards and everything. And I was walking across the co our college campus and it, it happened to be a Catholic college and, you know, growing up Catholic, you always, I think as, as you're trying to figure out the meaning of life, you kind of always look at the cross and every building I think had a cross on it. So. It was one of those beautiful nights. It was in uh, up in Center Valley, Pennsylvania. The campus had a mount had like rolling hills on either side of it. The, you know, this it was the springtime. Everything was in bloom, and I was kind of walking across the the campus and walking across, you know, right next to where our game field was. And I kind of looked up at the, you know, one of the buildings with the cross on it, and I was just, you know, one of those surreal moments where it was kind of like, what am I supposed to be doing? And my dad and I had talked about a little bit before of like giving back and kind of helping patients and speaking about Alpha One and, you know, doing some volunteer work. And I loved my job as a college lacrosse coach. I loved working with the, you know, the the guys who were, you know, trying to better themselves with an education and, and being student athletes. And it was just a really fun, you know, career path. And I was, you know, I was young doing it. So uh, midlife crisis, I probably have to rule out because I was in my, I think I was like 28, 29, <laughs> maybe 30. So I don't think I was quite at midlife crisis yet. Um, but 
really just one of those surreal moments. And it, it almost like, I don't know if I, I've had them in, I, you know, I, I think I've probably, everybody probably has those moments where that inner voice speaks to you, but I really put it out in the universe and I asked that. And then the next day I got a phone call from a guy who was looking for uh, patient advocates for Alpha One. And, you know, he said, uh, he said, I'd like, I'm flying through Philadelphia. You're not far from there. Do you want to meet me down at the airport? And I'll sit down and talk to you about the, uh, what we're looking for. And I thought that's great. I just, you know, I put it out in the universe. This guy called the next day. I, I thought, I really thought it was going to be like a, a volunteer type of thing. And then, you know, halfway through the conversation, he says, I want to offer you a job as an advocate for Alpha One patients. And, you know, you get to go around the country and, you know, provide awareness, detection, education. We, you know, we're, we're a pharmacy that's, you know, has a, has a big care plan around these patients. And you get to help people like your family that, that may not have gotten the help unless you were there. And, it was just kind of like, wow, this is a, this is actually happening. Like, <laughs> and ever since then, I've I've just kind of let the uh, the path take me where where it's gone. And you know, from there, I I worked for a pharmaceutical company who uh, were you know in sales and marketing that that and we created campaigns around Alpha One. I worked for the Alpha One Foundation as, as a director of detection and community outreach for the not for profit organization, the Alpha One Foundation, that's based in Miami, Florida. And then it kind of took me back to uh, what was then Centric Health Resources, with it, where I really started as an advocate. And then, you know, a few years later, we realized, hey, we want to do something more, and we founded OptimiCare. So, with my partners and the people that originally hired me at Centric, when I put it out there, it really has given taken me on a on a journey to where we are now. And I think I'm in, I'm doing what exactly what I'm supposed to be doing is is creating you know care plans and taking care of patients and just kind of change the way we lo- we think a little bit about that patient first you know mentality we should all have. Okay, so that's some magical airy fairy stuff. <laughs> that is not a coincidence. <laughs> Do you have a story from when you were younger and your dad had gotten sick that you believe was some sort of defining moment that shaped the way that you walk through life and how you run your company today? Yeah, I do. I, I think it's just, I think it's just, a, you know, all encompassing of, of my father. My, my, my dad had this like, kind of like this bright light about him. Like when I say that he was, he was a brilliant individual. I mean, he was, he, he had a couple of master's degrees. He was all about education. He always wanted to, you know, learn more. And I think that's kind of rubbed off on me is, you know, let's learn as much as we can about the, you know, the patients we serve and the disorders we work with and, you know, and, and try to, change the world of, of rare disease. But he was always preaching that education and always trying to do what was right by people. And no matter where you were or who you were, and I realized, realized this when he passed away with all of the people who reached out to me, no matter if you, if you met my dad for five minutes or you know, knew him for 10 years or 15 years, you, he, he impacted your life in a way that, that made you better. And you know, obviously growing up with him, it made me better. It made me think about things. It made me think about wanting to, you know, to do the right thing, to make sure that people were taken care of, to, you know, treating everyone with respect. All of those those traits I have and, and that I try to portray now uh, came from him and came from my mom, you know, my mom being the ultimate caregiver and, you know, and having strength. Little things in life, you know, that, that you that you took for granted, that most people take for granted, you know, going out inside and having catch with dad, you know, and my dad couldn't do it for some of our lives because he was out of breath. You know, I, I remember my first year coaching uh, as a head coach at the collegiate level, they, they had the national championships in Philadelphia. 
And I basically said, I, I got tickets and I, I got two tickets and I said, dad, do you want to go? And, and I realized at that point, he was pretty bad off. And I realized at that point that like he couldn't physically climb, he could get down to the seats in the stadium, but he couldn't get back up and like couldn't walk the steps back up without being severely out of breath. So I, I, I kind of learned some of the things like to recognize and to, to maybe not ask those, <laughs> not ask those questions, you know, knowing he couldn't do things. One of the things that I know you and I talked about was that whole diagnosis day, you know, and realizing there was something wrong. And unfortunately for for us and our family, we had to go through it a few times. We went, you know, we had to learn to deal with difficult situations that have kind of shaped what we do now. And, and it helps me actually think about how patients react to things. You know, we went through diagnosis day when we realized there was something wrong with my dad and we were in Disney. He went off a water slide and came up and he couldn't breathe and he screamed at my brother and I. And it was like the first time he ever yelled at us. So I look back on that day. It was a, it was a big day in our lives where he just kind of laid on the lounge chair at the side of the pool. And seeing him and my mom kind of go through that and realizing like we were, you know, we were off playing. We were 12, 13, and my brother was probably like 9 or 10. Him and I realizing at that moment, like there's something different about dad and it's not going to be the same. And then going through the next, you know, five to 10 years and looking at it from a standpoint of them saying, hey, you have to have a lung transplant and sitting down as a family and going through that, realizing like, hey, we're, we're going to get a lung transplant or, you know, you're going to have more and more trouble. And then also the surreal moment of that where you're looking at it going, you're going to have somebody else's lungs. So somebody has to, to die to save you and, you know, the ultimate like gift that somebody could give you. Um, they gave their life and they're, you know, they're, you're going to be, you're going to be breathing with their lungs. So that's a big emotional step that we had to go through. And it helps me every day think about those things that patients go through. And then, you know, toward the end when my dad was diagnosed with, you know, liver cancer and cirrhosis, you know, there's a picture on my wall right now of my 40th birthday where we went through a year of him going through chemo and intense treatments and things like that. And, you know, my 40th birthday, I, my, my wife, you know, sent me back to Philadelphia to hang out with my friends and knew my parents were going to be in town. So I got to go to the post year follow up for that. And everything seemed great. Doctor was excited. We got all the tumors. We did everything. We're good to go. So we were on a high and we were loving life. And we were like, look, we beat it. You look, you beat something else, dad. It's great. And then two months later, he started having liver issues. He started having, you know, major issues and being in pain. And then they realized, and no, it wasn't, in fact, gone. And it was kind of like one of those, like, you know, punch in the gut that, you know, we here's what we're going to do. And, you know, just going through all of those different things has really helped me prepare and helped me understand and helped me convey to the folks that, that work here uh, what patients go through on a daily basis, what, what rare disease patients go through on a daily basis. And it's helped us shape what we are as a company. It's helped us shape how we, you know, develop care plans. It's helped us shape how we, you know, really look at those patients as our brothers, our sisters, our parents, our fathers. Like, how do we, that's how we would want to be, you know, treated and do those little extra things. Stay on the phone a little longer. We don't time phone calls. If you need to take three hours with a patient, take three hours with a patient. Keep calling them. Let them know you're here. You know, it's, it's letting them know that there's somebody here to answer and somebody here to help them, you know, outside of that, you know, your family, in case you need to vent about your family member, we're here to hear it, you know, we're here to help. So we don't just, you know, check your insurance. We don't just educate you on the disorder. Sometimes we're just here as a friend to listen and that's okay. Cause that's what, that's, that's, that's part of being patient first. So I think all those things that I went through as a kid really helped shape me to understand what we need to do and do what do what's right for anybody we come in contact with
Oof, it takes my breath away, Donovan. And it's also not an extra, right? It's it's part of the care plan. I mean, caring. like It's just it. <laughs> it's genuine. It's there. I know that you talk about the patient-centric stuff and, you know, you were the son of a father and, uh, you know, a nephew to aunts and uncles who had this. But I wonder if you ever thought of yourself as part of the caregiver team as well. I do, but I I, I never want to take away from my mom, right? My mom was the ultimate rock. Um, she went through all those things directly with the person she loved and she was going to spend the rest of her life with. When I look at it, like we were there to help support her. We were there to help support my dad. And, you know, the, and we, yeah, we were caregivers, but she was, you know, she was that caregiver. She was that person who was always there, who was right on the front lines. We came in when she needed help. We came in when we were, you know, when we were available and we were there. We watched, we grew up with it. So it was kind of like one of those things that just always was there, right? Like you woke up and there's the IV pole that he's going to use tomorrow to get his IV. There's the oxygen tank. You know, I, I remember, you know, we took for granted, like my dad, <laughs> this is awful, but my mom needed my dad. Sometimes she'd like lean down and like the cord that was going through the house, she'd just like yank on it. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you didn't hear her yelling, she would just like, just tug on it a little bit. And it would, you know, oh jar his head back and it would be like, what, what do you want? You know? <laughs> I know that's awful, but the, it was just—it was just what we lived, right? And we—we—we we, we had a lot of humor in our lives just to kind of deal with some of the, uh, the sorrow. But you know, it was—it was always a, uh, you know, little things like that were just you know part of life, and uh, it was. Uh, that's hilarious. So I think I think yeah, being a caregiver is there, but I you know like I say, I never want to take it away from my mom because my mom was really the rock of the family, and you know she still I still think she's you know doing you know a lot of that caregiver. It's hard to get out of that mentality. She lives down in a uh, in an elderly community. When I say that, a 15 older community, a retirement community down in Hilton Head, and you know she's one of the. When she moved in, they were younger. Um, now they're all kind of getting to that in that 70 to 80 range, and I find her taking care of like a lot of our neighbors and being there to help people out because I, I I think once you're a caregiver, you're always a caregiver, and she's always looking to to help in any way she can. Your mom sounds amazing, and I'm going to try tying something to my husband and yanking on it. See if, it works. <laughs> See if he listens. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's the best story ever. And I do think that that is part of what carries you, right, is keeping the humor and finding the things that are just too ridiculous not to laugh at. Because what else do you have sometimes in those days when you're in the trenches, but laughing at the ridiculousness of it all? Right. Humor helps a lot. And people would like look at us like, what are you laughing at? And we're like, you have to laugh. If you don't, you're, you know, you're, you're going to be in constant like doldrums and you just, you got to get out of it with some laugh. <laughs> My dad would always joke like his biggest joke when we were growing up, you know, we'd be like, dad, come on, you know, and like, or, you know, he would, he would be a little slower getting ready or he would be doing something. He goes, what do you want from me? I have like half a lung, you know, and that was like his, <laughs> you know, his, his, his kind of mantra, like I have half a lung, you know, you can't expect me to run fast. You can't expect me to go move quick amazing. Did your family ever have the opportunity to meet the transplants family? We corresponded with, his name's Kevin, Kevin's sister, Burma, and she's a wonderful lady. And my dad, I know they would talk to each other every once in a while. I think my dad and my mom met them when they were going through South Carolina one time on vacation. There was a lot of letters. They would talk to each other on the phone. Um, so we got to read a lot of the letters. It was interesting because his donor was actually a, uh, a college professor and my dad was an old, my dad was a teacher all his life. So it was kind of like they were 
kind of kindred spirits, according to what we knew about him from uh, from his sister. My dad got a fruitcake every year because she would send his, her brother a fruitcake every year for Christmas. So she felt like the fruitcake was going to her brother by going to my dad. And I think he was able to, I think through, through what we found out through uh, transplantation, tr- he was able to save, you know, like four or five people with different, you know, tissue, organs, and, you know, his lungs and other things. So, you know, he he he, he passed away and, you know, gave, you know, gave what he could when he, when he passed away. So I think it was a selfless act. And, you know, based on the relationship I know my dad had with his, his sister was, you know, it was pretty nice at, toward the end. That's really special, the gift of life. And your dad was upgraded to a professor, which is pretty yeah. sweet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what has been the most surprising thing to you so far, or maybe the most meaningful thing uh, since starting your company? So I, you know, and it's funny because I, you know, when you when you look at companies and you and you work with you know in the farm industry, you always look at these metrics, right? So everybody looks at. Speed to service, time to fill, compliance, retention, utilization on product. They look at all these different metrics within the industry. And, you know, one of the things that I that I that I constantly say is the the greatest gift we have here is the relationships we have with our patients. And I, I look at those metrics and they're well and good. But I really look at the success of our company and the success of our, our folks here. And this is where I am so proud of the individuals who work here. They get letters from the patients. They get invites to, you know, anniversaries. They get invites to, you know, birthday parties. They get invites to, you know, different events these patients are having. And not, not just local, but like from around the country, you know, because we, we do service patients nationally. And we're getting those invites in the, with, a, with a tagline of, you gave my husband back. So we were able to celebrate our 25th anniversary. We were able to see my daughter graduate because everything you did for us for, you know, helping with that patient care model and making sure that we had therapy, we had the medication that we needed. So we want you to be part of that graduation. We're having our our, our third last Christmas, so we want you to be a part of it because somebody told us we wouldn't live past the next Christmas. And because what you because of everything you've done for me, we're here. So come come to Christmas dinner. We have patients that stop by on their cross country journey. We're right off of I seventy, which is you know a corridor that goes across the country. So when some of these patients are retired and they're, you know, living the RV life or they're, you know, saying, hey, I'm going to drive across country, they stop here and, and, they're, and, they, and they want to meet their care coordinators. They want to meet their pharmacists. And I know we make an impact and we hear those things, but I never thought that we'd, we'd see it at that caliber. So that's been the most eye-opening. That's been the most, you know, rewarding to me is the, the seeing how much of an impact our, our care coordinators, our pharmacists and our nurses have on the patients that... They talk to on a, on a on a daily or monthly basis, and it's just it's so special. It really is, and you know, I, I it, it's just an amazing, amazing and magical experience that we have here. Yeah, that's incredible. And you know how important the the care teams, in whatever way they show up for families, become a part of the family. And it's yeah, you're seeing it <laughs> firsthand. And I think that's probably not very normal in your industry. So. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad that you're shaking things up and you're changing the game for patients and their families and how your company approaches it because it speaks for itself, really. Yeah, we're we're excited and we uh, we continue to to try to find ways where we can even improve what we do now. So I think it's a an ever changing world we live in in healthcare, and you know we're just doing our small part to make sure that the patients get the care that they need. 
Very cool. So I want to talk about your podcast for a minute. Uh, first of all, I think every business needs a podcast, <laughs> but I want to know like what the podcast has brought. Like, how has that addition been for you personally? And also, why have you chosen to kind of go into the niche of talking to the rare disease patients and families as opposed to some healthy, sciencey, pharmaceutical-y, <laughs> business-y podcast? Yeah, so it, it is a little bit of a mixture of of that, and that you know, the, you know, season one we had uh, we had you know an array of different people. So we have some families, and we had some folks there. We had some former CEOs of some companies. We had some payer folks. What we really found is, you know, everyone has a voice, and to really understand the rare disease world, you have to kind of look at it from a patient perspective. But then you also have to understand that there's a lot that goes into, you know, bringing a drug to market or getting a drug covered or building a, a care plan or program. So when we started Rare Voices, it was kind of right at the pandemic, which is a really weird time to start something. But we also found that we had people listening and we found that, you know, by, by bringing together folks in the rare disease world and having insights to a lot of those things really meant something. And really had an idea of what it meant to, you know, bring those people together. And what we found is there's so many people like yourself who become their own advocates and really push to bring about, you know, change and bring about change in the world of, of rare disease. And, and it could be a change around how to detect something. Um, it could be a change around how physicians, you know, take that extra step to find out what's wrong. Um, it could be a change in how do we tr bring a treatment about. So what we try to do is find the wisest people that we could find and tell their story. When we've done that, it's really been an eye-opener to me that people aren't running away from their story anymore. You know, you're, the people in the rare disease world aren't like hiding, you know. They want to tell their story. There's a mission behind it. And the more we can get people to step out and tell their story, the more awareness we can, you know, we can get around these these disorders or these diseases that that affect three people, five people, 20 people, 100 people and, you know, 5,000 people. That's what we really want to make sure that people understand. You know, everybody knows diabetes. Everyone knows heart disease. Everyone knows, you know, the, the knowns that are out there. It's these rare dis diseases that need more attention so we can get the research, we can get the development, we can get the things that we need to, you know, to, to find treatments and find cures. Yes. I love it. I think that your Rare Voices podcast is definitely one of the best new, well, new-ish now, new -ish, yeah. podcasts <laughs> on on the scene. And you all just do such a great job with it. And it's just a really brilliant extension of what you're doing and getting the word out and really just displaying the honest face behind the company, right? And I think, I think you're all doing a really great job. And I also love that it's just another way, maybe not the podcast, but your company of taking rare disease people and just infiltrating the machine. Uh, so I love knowing that someone like you is behind a company like Optimate Care. Well, thank you, thank you. It's it, like I, said, you know, and I think you hit it on the on the nose in the beginning. It's a, it's a mission driven company, and it's a, it's real, and and we're all here to to provide that mission. Uh, you know, to to make sure those patients have a trusted path forward for their therapies. Well, Donovan, is there anything that I didn't ask you that that you want to let our listener know? 
I don't think so. I, th- I think just tell your story. I think the biggest thing is, you know, for your listeners, if they have rare disease, and I know there's a lot of folks that we're, you know, connected with online, tell your story. Um, I know I just put a call to action out um, recently through uh, LinkedIn. It's, uh, you know, asking for podcast guests and people that want to tell their story about, you know, how they've, have they, how they've infiltrated the, uh, the rare disease world and, you know, what they're doing to be their own advocate. Tell your story, tell it loud, be proud, and, you know, we can all make a difference. Amen. Okay. Well, tell everybody where you can find them and I'll link everything in our show for them. Sure thing. You can find us at uh, www.optimecare.com backslash rare voices. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at uh, Donovan Quill and any other social media uh, outlet that you see. And also you can email me at donovan.quill at optimecare.com. Awesome. All right, Donovan, I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for connecting with me in general. And thanks for taking the time to be a guest on my show. I'm really happy to have you as a friend and in our circle. So thanks again. Thanks, Effie. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 